All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast Series, the number one sports podcast on planet Earth. It's really good to be back. I had a little bit of a break over December. Um, it, it was kind of on purpose. I I didn't really chase too many guests, and I was I was busy doing a little bit of work and trying to set myself up for 2022, which is promising to be an absolute belter, uh, hopefully for everyone, but certainly for me, I've got a lot going on. I'll be living in two different places, um, coaching at Southern Districts, the Fords and Second Grade, which I'm really, really pumped about. I've got two podcasts. I've got this podcast, and I do a podcast with the great man, Jed Gillespie, the Eastwood Fords coach called the Loosehead Sports Show, and you know what, let's just talk about it now. I guess this would be a good time to sort of explain where I'm going to take this thing. So initially when I started Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, it was it was during the first lockdown in Sydney, and you know, initially when you start these things, you go, I want to make money out of it. So it was kind of done as a business move, and... I didn't expect that I would get guys like Kieran Reid, Hoops, Pat Lamb, Simon Cron. I didn't really expect any of the people that I would get. And, you know, episode four, I think I've spoke to Pat Lamb, who, you know, in my eyes is an absolute rock star in the coaching world and someone that I looked up to. You know, then eventually I spoke to Kieran Reid and then Anthony Seabold, who I'm a huge fan of. And it's kind of evolved into into more than just a business thing, and you know, obviously, I'm 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 a no name, so I didn't really have an audience when I started this, which apparently most podcast people do. Uh, so I'm trying to be, I'm I'm building it from scratch, which is the way you got to think about it, and it's a it's a long term game. So it's kind of morphed into a learning tool for coaches and and for me and. You know, at the moment, I'm, I'm fascinated by coaching, so I'm getting a lot of coaches on and you know, just having the ability to pick the brains of some of the best coaches in the world has been uh, wonderful for me, not only as a rugby coach, but in my life. So that that's kind of where it's at with this one. So the Wandering Bear Sports podcast is going to be more of a... It'll, it won't be as regular, um, but I, I'm going to make sure I get the absolute highest quality guess and try and do my, my best to to ask good questions and to, to help educate people as well as myself. So the other podcast, the Loosehead Sports Show, which, as I mentioned, I do with Eastwood Fords coach Jed Gillespie, is going to be far more of a regular podcast. And what we want to do is is give people an insight into the shoot shield so the shoot shield in my opinion and many other people's opinion would have to be one of the biggest semi-professional competitions in the world certainly the southern hemisphere it's it's got a huge following it's on tv you know and it just keeps going from strength to strength in terms of the professionalism and um there's other people that do podcasts but that there are, are no other podcasts that I know of with two coaches currently coaching in the shoot shield. So hopefully we're going to get other coaches, other people, players involved in so that we can give people a lot of insight into what goes on. Uh, and Jed and I just talk a lot of crap as well. So it's always a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, he's a very uh, smart guy and yeah, we always have a good time. So that'll be on every week. I'll share it on, I'll share it on here. 
Um, okay, before I get into today's podcast, can I please ask that you all follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, that stuff makes a huge difference. If you like YouTube, please subscribe or like or subscribe or whatever the hell it is on YouTube. And yeah, tell someone about it. Tell someone about it. It um, It's building slowly, but I feel like we have some of the best rugby content going on. So the more word of mouth that gets out there, the more people will be able to, to hear this and learn as well. Um, I think that's all I had. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, this episode is sponsored by Caffeine Gum Australia, which is Kate and my company. Um, you know, if you've listened to this regularly, you know that I'm a big caffeine guy. And I discovered it when I was at the Rebels in 2015. We had an NRC game in Manly. And for whatever reason, we left Melbourne at 6 in the morning to get to Manly for a 7.30 p.m. kickoff that night. And when it came time to the warm-up, I was absolutely cooked. And the S&C Brendan, who I think's with the Wallabies now, came over and gave me a, uh, a blue tablet. And I was a little bit dubious about it because, it, you know... You know, I'm a coffee drinker, not a co- not a chewing gum man. And he goes, chew this. Chewed it, and within five minutes, I felt like I could run through a wall. And, you know, I didn't have to run to the bathroom. It lasted for ages. And I, th- I think I played 80 minutes that night. Which, uh, for anyone that ever saw me play, would know that that was a complete rarity. So, highly recommend it. Everything that goes through that goes into supporting the podcast. Um, yeah. I, I, oh, while I'm here... I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna rant. It's my podcast. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to the coffee van. They do not sponsor me, but if you need any coffee for your events, Mum is the coffee van lady, and she does an incredible job. She's an absolute perfectionist, which does my head in. But it's it's honestly some of the best coffee you'll have. So reach out to me if you need a coffee van for your event. She'll go all over New South Wales, and she's awesome. And do I have anyone else i got to shout out? No. If you want to support the podcast, buy Caffeine Gum. If you're interested in sponsoring, just reach out. Uh, we've got a really dedicated and loyal rugby audience, and we're just going to try and build it slowly. So that's enough ranting today. Let's introduce today's guest. Um, so I decided to do this as a two-part podcast because I think I told him it was going to be 45 minutes. We ended up talking for an hour and a half on Boxing Day, which was pretty cool. And uh, I think it might be the only long-form interview he's done since he's got the job. So that's that's pretty cool for me. But uh, it's really good to pick his brain and to see what makes the man tick. And I think people enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy part one of my two-part conversation with the New South Wales Waratahs head coach, Darren Coleman. Mate, we're live. Merry Christmas. Cheers. We're on. Merry Christmas. Mate, good to see you, mate. And yeah, hold on one sec. We're live. Mate, how I normally do this is it's kind of an informal conversation, but mostly based around coaching and sort of elite level footy. But so I've got a little bit of a plan of things I want to ask you, but I'm going to mix it up a little bit. You know, let's see what happens. It's nothing too curly, but I'm going to throw a few things at you. 
if someone said to you at the end of last year that you were going to be the head coach of the Waratahs in 2021, what would you have said to them? Oh, uh, end of last year, yeah, I probably not much. I wouldn't have thought that was much of a probability. I was taking just getting all my family organised to um, to move to LA, and and we were full swing into that. So yeah, I would have thought uh, that was a very long shot at that point. So- so it wasn't in the pipeline at all. So things things have changed pretty fast in the last year for you. Yeah, they have. Yeah, even uh, even the LA thing came up. So that was what are we finished twenty one? So in twenty was about halfway through the season that the LA gig got wheels, and then that was obviously a pretty significant shift. Happened to to move to the hotbed of COVID and world in Los yeah. Angeles, and then. Uh, then halfway through the season over there, then to get some interest from the cars and end up back here was, um, yeah, two pretty big shifts. But hey. that's sort of been my life, I guess. I, particularly in my early stages of, of my coaching career, I was sort of, I was here, there and everywhere. I didn't mind packing up. I only had two bags, so it was pretty easy to move around. But as you get a, a missus and kids, she's a bit of a, a bit more of a logistical operation you got to think a bit for other obviously think for other people as well so uh but yeah it didn't bug me it was um and in the end it's, it's worked out great and it's worked out good for the family as well so definitely no complaints Mate, are you the kind of guy that that looks back and and thinks about how far you've come or are you are you one of those guys that sort of stays in the moment and is looking at the next job because it, I, as i look around the world 2021 was pretty crazy for a lot of people and I'm not one of those person that reflects a lot, but the last week I kind of looked back and I've gone, holy shit, I've done some things this year. <laughs> How do you look back on 2021 for you and your life? Yeah, uh, well, 21 was a great year, but I guess as far as seeing how far you've come in total, this is probably the one job that I've got that I've looked back and went, yeah, obviously proud to have got it. And look at where I was. The funny thing was I started my first job out of university was with the New South Wales Rotars. I was a development officer for two years, way back in 1995. Then I went on to become their academy coach. And then I, I Stephen Bradbury me way into being a skills coach with the main team in, in the year of 2000. And I was only 26. And I remember guys like Dick Harry, Matt Burke, Bill Kearns, those guys, I'm 26 and trying to coach them, totally, totally inept. Um, they had a funny little nickname for me, which was, funnily enough, Dick Harry was on the interview panel um, 21 years later, and I started with the interview. I said, well, I hope, uh, I hope you don't still don't think of me as that. And um, it was actually, I don't mind saying, it was, PV shorts for po- short for Pope's balls because that's how useful I was around the team, and uh, so the 21 years go back and be the head coach of of the Waratahs. Yeah, I do pinch myself a bit because as I said, I butchered that opportunity 21 years ago. I wasn't ready for it. So yeah, I am at a risk of sounding like a big head. I, I am proud of the what I've done along the way and where I've got to now for sure. Um. um. I was, I was going to ask you about that first into the TARS. And I think it's, it's probably good for a lot of young coaches to, to hear about that because it's very easy to talk about success and, and 
you know, he won premierships at Gordon and Moringa and LA and, and all that kind of stuff. But most people don't really talk about the, you know, failures for a lack of a better word. What did you learn from that experience that that's taken you into the next stages of your coaching career? And, and even today, can you look back on that and think of things that you you've learned from that experience? Oh, of course. Yeah. hundred percent. But you didn't at the time, I know sort of, you, it is true. You sort of become, I think you become wiser as you get older. Um, I didn't, when I, when the head coach changed, that was the reason I shifted on. I went from Ian Speed Kennedy to Bob Dwyer and Bob had his own staff. He brought in Scotty Wiseman or back from Japan to replace me. And, and again, as I said, I wasn't doing a good job anyway. So there's no hard feelings, but at the time you go, oh, I think I'm nailing that. <laughs> and it's not till you go on and, and do another five or 10 years of coaching and you start to, you end up forgetting more things than you, I knew at that time. Um, so yeah, you definitely reflect back and, and it was in hindsight, it was the best thing for me. Like I, I took off overseas, man. I went for, I'd never been overseas. I, I, I went on a supporter tour to the 99 World Cup. It was the first time I'd ever been overseas at 25 years of age. I was a pretty small town country guy that sort of was pretty sheltered life. Uh, in that respect. So that sort of got me on a plane. I went and did a, was going just to do six months in Ireland and I stayed away for six years, did Ireland, Canada, Italy, and still playing. I was in the latter part of my playing and coaching. And I still think to this day, in complete isolation there, you're one and only team coach. I was even a player coach. I was doing the line outs, doing the, as little I knew of the scrum, doing the conditioning, doing the attack and defense whilst playing. I think, and sometimes in a foreign language, I reckon it was those six years, to be honest, that shaped me most as a coach. Like, uh, you're just immersed in it, trying to do your best, just thinking and swimming at different times. And, yeah, you get to bigger jobs where you've got more staff and, and, and all that, but you can't, you can't go past, I can't go past the lessons I learned in that six-year overseas stint from 2000 to 2005, sorry, five years now. It was awesome. How did you go about learning different areas of the game? Because uh, purely for selfish reasons, I was obviously a very slow, tight head prop that might have touched the ball five times a season. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm having to learn what halfbacks do, centers yeah. do. So during that period, how did you attack it? How did you think about it? it was, yeah, it's interesting. And like I've done a full circle now. I wouldn't, as much as I, I, I do our team attack, I when I pass to my specialist coaches now and I've got three and a half really good, sorry, four and a half, Blazey's not full-time as a coach, really good, sharp assistant coaches that are specialists in their roles and just time on task. I don't confess to know as much as them. I have a feeling now how I want the game to look. I know how I want my team to attack and tactically play the game. But with Chris Whitaker, for example, I do the team attack, but I'll say to Wits, this is how I want it to look. Do you agree? How can we put the detail in and around that to get it? Um, I was lucky. I was always a footy nerd. Like those five years as the Waratahs as a development officer and academy coach, I was just surrounded by, back then, was sort of the brains of the game. And, and I just had an interest in it. Listen, Andrew Blades back then, actually, lecture on mall and, and line out. One area I probably stayed away from and still have is scrum. I just... And more to a lesser extent, but there was a period. My first 
stint in the Shoot Shield, 205 at Penrith, into 206 and 7 at North. I coached the lineouts in those teams and I, I brought that back from overseas and coached some pretty good lineout operators. And I, because I was immersed in it and right in it, I thought it was, thought I was doing all right out of my team, seemed to perform in those aspects of the game. I found lineout a bit like I play, to be honest. You've got to, you've just got to find space. So whether that's, you beat them to the punch or whether that you, you decoy and, and faint somewhere and come up somewhere else. It's not too different. The concept isn't too different than attack. Um, but as I sort of climbed the levels and assistant coaches become more important and you use them, I did back out of those areas a bit more. And I'm the first to confess. I, I feel I know if a scrum goes down or I, I have a bit of an idea on who's caused it or, I can see what scrum's clearly been dominant and have a bit of an idea purely through listening to other scrum experts talk on it. Um, yeah, but I definitely wouldn't confess now to be a line-out guru. The, the, the throw-jump system now and the triggers that teams use, it's, yeah, I think you've got to be in that moment and, and live in that daily. So I, I enjoy it and I, I watch it and I give feedback to my line-out coaches and forwards coaches, but probably as much around how they're teaching it and how it's going to fit in with us as opposed to what they're teaching. And I, as long as that aspect of the game is going well, I rarely interfere. Like Paulie Moypower has obviously come on as my forwards coach and he's drawn the line out and mall and you know, I give him his head 100%. <laughs> Might change if we start losing a few line outs in season and I become an instant expert. But at the moment, so yeah, long answered question. I did, I did really enjoy learning other aspects of the game. I've noticed as I've become a head coach and the organisations have got bigger, man management has become clearly the number one thing you've got to be good at, I believe. But I, I do have strong thoughts on the game. Still, like to think I, I have a bit of tactical now, and particularly around the attacking side of the game. But it's very hard to well, professional sports. You look at American football; they were the first to sort of really specify and go into specialist coaches. It clearly works. So, yeah, I'm just getting used to it with the times and have a, have a feeling across it all, but try not to interfere in the coaches in their areas of speciality. You did a presentation at the Level 3 course earlier this year and you talked, and I hope it's all right if I ask you, if it's, if it's something you don't want to talk about, just let me know. But you mentioned mm. a three-phase or a three-stage plan that you were implementing at the Waratahs. Are you happy to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you use the term presentation loosely. That's probably been one of my weak points. I'm not. There's some guys that are gurus with all the the computer business. I think we just sat around in a circle and I gibbered for a while. I might have had a slideshow with it, but uh, <laughs> that's. Um, I think someone else did that for me because um, I said I had to have one. Um, yeah, no, happy, happy to, mate. Like it's we're we're just finished phase two of it now, so. You never know whether it's working or not. But, yeah, I, I guess with that team I or the team I'm with now, I, I really felt as I dug into getting to know the boys early before I, we started training under my reign. Because I was lucky. I, I got back. I had three or four weeks. I had a couple of weeks ISO. I had a couple of weeks without any contact with the players. Then I had a four-week block where they were finishing off their last training block under the assistant coaches who stayed on, uh, Gilmore, Jace Gilmore and Chris Whitaker. So I could just observe. And then it was my, then, then I sort of took over my part of it. And 
and I got to know the players. I spent that six-week period having like one, one-and-a-half-hour sit-downs with each player, just getting known as a bloke and, and their background. And, and one thing that hit home was, well, I was most curious about, and it's hard for them to measure, was how much their confidence had taken a, a sting from last year, particularly some of those kids that have been schoolboy superstars into genuinely playing and genuinely playing in winning teams. Having that season they had, I was curious how much their confidence took a hit. So that first block of training we had, we sort of phased that around trying to rebuild their confidence. So all our messaging was positive. Uh, we rarely pulled them up for error as such. Um, and I just generally, it was a big warm and fuzzy feeling. We, we did some team building exercises and some player morale stuff that made them feel good about themselves. So that was phase one, to try and rebuild their confidence. I guess you can't really rebuild it till they're on the field carving up again, but I felt like they felt comfortable around me and, and they felt appreciated was, the, was one of the big outcomes. Second phase we went into, and we're just sort of tailoring off of that now. That culminated in a camp we just did on our last weekend down in Kangaroo Valley. And that was around tough, just uh, the, the resilience piece, the mental toughness, uh, physical toughness. I think I genuinely believe rugby games are won at either end of the field. If you're, uh, if you're accurate and patient and precise, in their A zone and you get points out of most of your visits. Conversely, if you can be tough and defend your line like it's like it's your own house and turn teams away, not every time, but again, win that ledger. Most teams in, a, in an even game, the average is about eight entries. Each team will get eight entries into the other team's 22 metre zone. So if you're scoring four or five times and you've restricted them to, to two times. Now, it's very simple math, but you generally win the yeah. game. So, the, yes, there's clearly strategy around how you get to either out of your end and into their end, and that's a big part. But I do now spend a lot of my time and psychology around those being on the dance floor and attack and, and, and getting the good sheila home. And, and on the other end, uh, defending your patch. So our, year, our phase two was around tartuff, and we did a lot around... Players talked about things they were proud of and their resilience uh, that they've showed prior in life. We did a pretty tough camp, uh, which had a lot of, um, we're in nature, we sort of know creature comforts, we hiked through nights, we paddled through hot days and, and just sort of got them thinking about what sort of team man they want to be when, when shits are trumps, when times are really tough. What sort of team man am I going to be? Am I going to be the head down quiet just, just sort of chip away or am I going to try and help people so yeah we did the tartuff and then um, we've got probably another week of that when we get back just because we've got a couple of things I've got to tidy up on that a couple of players we've got to speak yet and it ties in perfectly week two when we get back after holidays we get our wallabies back and my pack to the six wallabies that went on that tour was when they return it'll be a different group than what they left it um It'll be a um, it'll be a resilient it'll be a confident group and um, so it's got the local Indian restaurant. No, no you're oh, right, mate. Walking path. <laughs> um, and uh, so yeah, I, I really hope. I, I think a good test is 
when the boys come back, Jakey and Swint and, and that, they're going to go, wow, this, this group moves in a different way. Like it's got a different vibe to it. It's got a different aura to it and it's tougher than when I left it. So then the third players I'll go in once they get back will be around accountability. Like if you want to stay in this team, you want to be in this team, you want to represent Australia's biggest and proudest rugby state, you got to fucking aim up. You, you, you got to be accountable. Like you, you got to, you've got to perform. As do I. Like if we don't perform, you won't be there. So I'll get a lot harder. I've let things slide a little bit because again, I was building their confidence or I was focused on toughening them up. But now, if your foot is an inch over the line, or or you do take off slightly in the wrong direction on a pattern, like or you didn't put in your yeah, I don't know, your recovery sheet or whatever it may be. You know what I mean? Just, and I'll, they'll see a sort of different side of me where I'll be, yeah, I'll be cracking the whip a bit around their professionalism and their, and then just being accountable. So they're the three phases. So we, we wanted to rebuild their confidence. I wanted to toughen them up and I wanted them to understand that playing in this team and being a professional player, there's responsibilities and standards that go with it. Do you think, because it's obviously a lot, a lot of young guys in the squad and there's some very good rugby players, but do you, do you think that you have to learn how to win? Is, is that a real thing? Like a lot of them are winners at shoot shield level, but you jump up the super rugby level and it's just a different kettle of fish again. And, it, and it's having to learn how to be successful week in, week out. Is there something there? Yeah. Jesus, it, it, like one of those million-dollar sports side questions. I'd, like, oh, I've had so many different lean, uh, periods in my career where that first thing I went overseas after the Tars, we had a losing season with the Tars in 2000. And I went over and I had five or six years of doing it my own way, but we won. Like, we won a, won a few, fair few championships in that six-year period between Canada and Italy. Obviously, it was a lower level of footy. But we won. Then I came back. I took over Penrith. I went to Norse, middle of the road. Yeah, had a few championship wins in between there, the old ARC, all that. And then, and then yeah, from that rat year, I think I just had sort of four years of, in my career, unprecedented success. Like where I think You've I could kill one. Yeah, one hand where the game's been lost. And um, did I actually, I often question myself, like, have I changed how I coach or did I learn to win? I, fuck, man, I, I wish I could say there is a, a secret or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did. We had a trial last week and the other week before we broke and I wanted the boys to experience a winning change room. So I built up the result a bit more than what it would have been in a December trial. And we got beat and the change room was the worst outcome. The change room probably felt like it had felt for them um prior so they didn't get that pure ecstasy you get of a winning change room but i definitely made them understand that a losing dressing room you don't want to be in and if anyone's smiling in a losing dressing room there'll be there'll be some repercussions so you learn to win uh i think there's a bit of it like you know you play someone i always think it like uh you might play someone in a game of squash or table tennis or something like that and you first, when you're warming up, you go, I got this guy covered. Like he's, you can tell his skill level is lower. Like you might've played more squash or, or table tennis, whatever it is. They used to do this with Andy friends, but they're just such fucking competitors yeah. and they just figure out a way. They look unco, they, 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 but they just stay in the fight. They win the important points. 
at the end of a five-setter, they, they've got the win and you're going, fuck, that guy's a winner. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... Yeah. So I do, I definitely think, like, having just done that year in LA with Gitto, Gitto who's won so much, Swoop, um, Dave Dennis, all completely different personalities, all winners nonetheless. Um, but yeah, there, there's a, there is something around guys that, and we talk about it now, everything I'm doing at training, there's a winner and a loser. Like I, even if like it's a sprint race between two blokes, like I say, look, you're racing that guy. And at the end you win, you're happy. You lose, you're sad. Like, unfortunately there's, there's people where they change losing to um, an opportunity to learn. Like I hear, yeah. I listen to a lot of podcasts and refs and I'm like, yeah, it is. But yeah. you lose, you're not there for long if you keep losing, particularly in professional sport and you're not heading the right way. Uh, that, with that, losing. Yeah. That, that was something I did want to ask you about because in professional sport, you would judge purely on results, but it, it doesn't always tell the full picture of the improvement in the team. And, and sometimes it can take a few years to, to rebuild a team and to get, to get the group to where you want to go. So how, how do you think about that balance between being successful now, but long-term progress? Because it does take time to actually improve people. Yep. No, I agree. And when I, I probably put a bit of a layman's uh, slant on it, um, I definitely do measure progress. I'd like to think at this point in time, probably contrary to the most rugby punters in Sydney, I feel I do have a supportive board and CEO that they know we're not going to win the Super Rugby in 222. Um, but as long as we can... We can win a share of games. Like I've got my, my eye on a, a top eight. If, you, if you're not shooting for the top eight in 12-10 comp, then you, I shouldn't be there. Um, but, yeah, if we can get some progress, those kids those kids start to um, develop. Some of those, those close losses become close wins. They get that that adrenaline, yeah. that, that feel you get in the change room after winning, and it's a, it's a thirst that drives you for the next week as well. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely I'm I'm not an idiot. This ain't going to be Gordon. Like I ain't going to go from dead last to to first as quick as I did there. Um, the salary cap and existing long term contracts, all that sort of stuff, prevent it's it's yeah shoot shield. I believe and you can you can turn places around a bit quicker and shoot shield with some equipment. So let's not be not hide from the fact. Um, so, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I, I just think um, – and we'll look at some ways. Like, I've, I've got good assistant staff that I'm asking them to some, put some measurements down on what the boys did last year in their certain aspects. What was their tackle percentage? What was their uh, high pass quality percentage? Blah, blah, blah. And then if we're not getting the exact wins we need on the scoreboard immediately, but we're in the fight and the team's showing resilience, I'll find enough – you can find it whatever you want in stats. You can butcher them wherever you want. And I'll say to the boys, look, individually, you are improving. We're getting there. We're getting closer. There's some progress in this aspect of your game. Look at you physically. You're, you're running faster. You're lifting heavier. Um, you're making better decisions now. We'll get there. So I'd like to think as long as we show significant improvement, everyone will cut us a little bit of slack in you one. But the secret... Well, not the secret, but the, the driving competitiveness of me is I, I take losing pretty pretty bad. So even if we do lose to a 
to a well-credentialed team, the team won't enjoy that or they won't feel feel content with that. But, yeah, there'll be a bit of a trade-off in year one. But year two, we're, uh, those boys will be another year older. We're back in our own stadium. We can't understand the fact we're just having a, a good home ground to play at. Um, yeah, I'd like to think by 23 where we're definitely in there swinging with the, with the better teams. Has anything surprised you after your first stint of preseason? Looking back, um, yeah, it's probably two things, um, maybe a couple. It just amazes, it just hits home again how professional and dedicated these kids are. Like they're, mate, they're. Yeah, you, you watch them. I watched the Waratahs play and didn't know seventy percent of them, and you go. You sort of see the end product, and you go, "Oh, geez, that, that Ben Donaldson, he, he, he may not be—he may not be that tough." I'll, I'll, I'll really sort him out when I get there, and you get to know them, and they're just such dedicated, good, positive kids that just bleed team, uh, are on the training paddock till it's dark, uh, are mentally tough because they work so hard, and have already copped. So that—that that was one. Um, you come out of Shoot Shield particularly, then I'd put uh, MLR somewhere between Shoot Shield and Super Rugby. It's probably like the old NRC. That would be the level of it. And you go you, – you get naturally biased towards your own players. Like I remember when I was at the Rats and we won the one in 17 and made the grand final in 18 and I've got a team in the grand final that's got no super players and we're playing uni in that 18 grand final. We've got 10 and I'm like, boys, we – these selectors, they've got fucking wrong. Like we're gonna, we're gonna get into them. They pump us by forty, and you go, well, that's the difference between a, a super. And now I notice it. Like some of my good guys from Gordon, this last stint, they're in doing preseason with a couple of my better performers, and there's a gap. Like there's there's definitely a gap between a good shoot shield player and a and a standard super rugby player, and so that that hit home again. You start to. Start to cloud your own judgment by how good a guy's go, how good a guy is, and then when you see him in that next notch up in quality, you go, okay, well, that's why he wasn't getting picked. That's what a that's what a wallaby does. You see it in Ship Shield when players drop back. Like yeah. uh, I remember, I remember when Jack Dempsey dropped back uh, for our last five rounds into the playoffs with Gordon. You just see him do things and go, well, that's what a Super Rugby player slash fringe wallaby does. Like he just just does it bigger, better, and faster. Um, yeah, they're, the, they're, they're two of the things and probably from my LA team to my TARS team, really different um, profiles of team. Like we had at LA, we had like 10 to 12 blokes that were over 30. We had more kids running around the change room than, than, than girlfriends. Um, whereas now, I think there's only two players in my TARS squad that have got kids and they've only got one or two each. So... The biggest, the biggest thing I've noticed between the two differences is how, how fit and fast the Tars are. Like, um, we're a bigger, older team. Like, whenever Deno will get tired over an MLR or Gibson get tired, they just slow the game down. They, were, they could play like 36-year-olds. Um, but here, the, the, game, the pace is super rugby and the pace they train at and their, their speed around the field, the speed into position – that was a massive, um, massive eye opener for me. Yeah, it's them, these these boys move fast and they're consistently 
off the ground quick in a position, all got good foot speed, all got footwork and, and can move the ball around the field well. So I'm excited by that because that, hopefully that'll be a team that will be, I want to be a fit, fast, ball movement team that passes well and interplays well. And I think it, I've got a group there for the most part. We, we do need a bit more physicality. I'm not, not shying from that, but we've definitely got a team that hopefully will move the ball around well and excite some people. You mentioned man management a bit earlier. And I could imagine, so I've, I've seen how it's done at shoot shield level, but I, I can imagine stepping it up to super rugby level. You've got to, you've got to manage your staff. I'm sure there's some stuff you got to do with the board. You've got your, your players, but you've also got the fact that they're a group of young men who are like under pressure from people socially sometimes. And like, it's a weird position to be in, in your, your early twenties to be a public figure, basically. What surprised you about the man management side of jumping up from MLR or, or shoot shield up into super rugby? Um, sorry, on the head, but nothing. I reckon, nothing. Uh, yeah, I reckon people are people. Like, if, yeah, I, I haven't changed who I am. I haven't changed how I treat people, regardless of what level I'm at. Um, I live by a, a few real key uh, moral values that my dad gave me. Um, and he was a good people's person. He was a uh, a surf club guy and a football guy that understood volunteerism, respected people's time, understood what dedication was. And I genuinely don't, I haven't done anything different. Yeah, there's accountability, but there's, at Shoot Shield, there's accountability. If my physio was fucking things up, I'm, I'm into him. Like, if you want to take this job, yeah. yes, whether or you want to be an assistant coach at a first or second grade Shoot Shield club, there's standards you got to do. Like you, you can't take Sunday off and not do stats. Like even though you're I'm only paying your grand for the whole year, you agreed to do something at the start of the year, and we agreed on that. And you said you were going to do that, then you, you got to do it. So that side of it, obviously the stakes are up. Um, I've definitely a lot more people to manage. Like I've got a lot more. You got three or four S and C coaches, and although you you have a head head of performance, who you like to deal directly with him on his department you do you end up building relationships with everyone that's just how i am like i'm not going to walk past the, the third third string snc coach and not have a yarn to him because there's three people of chains of command between me and him i'll always always do that um so it's just something you, so it's just something you do quite naturally or is it something sorry to cut you off but it, is it something you put effort into naturally or yeah you you no, as in, I, well, I'd like to think I can get on with people. I think that was a, a bit of a God-given thing. I can I can hold a conversation with a, a rich private school, ex-private school board member. Or I can I leave here after six beers. I'll go to my local surf club and, and drink with a local town drunk. Like I can I can get along with most people. You do got to put more effort into it. Like when you're tired and and, and you might be grumpy or you know, I'm not perfect. You sort of you walk past someone and you might not have been as engaging as you should have been, and I'll, I'll that might hit me on the way home in the car. And she's on the dick there, and I'll get home and I'll text him and go, "Sorry, mate, I didn't have a good as good a yarn to you as I, I should have then. Can we catch up tomorrow and and all that?" Or you do. You, you, 
it's just amazing like how particularly when you become the boss I found when I wasn't a boss when I worked at the Brumbies I did four years there and Andy Friend I thought was a, he was a good mentor of mine a great man manager like he'd give me little areas of responsibility of the game and and I just knew if he come and said, mate, I've seen your paper on or I've seen your stats on our kickoff receipt attack or something like that. And he then, it was all set up. I didn't know at the time. He might have said to Rocky Elson or Halsey or someone, mate, uh, DC did the research on this. Make sure you give him a rap on that. And the boys would come and give me a rap on that. My chest would go out. I, I, that was what incentivized me to stay up at 2am and do the next lot of work. You know what I mean? So... You just, I think that whole man management, people don't understand, the, the senior administrators or senior managers, how powerful praise is at, at the right time and, and just the little, and I, I've, I've sort of taken that a lot now. And with my team, I, I, I sort of, I want the unseen selfless acts to be noted. And I do, I call them out all the time. Like if, if I see a guy walk past the, the old gear steward, and not pick up the drink tray and just walk past, I'll stop the whole group and, and make him feel like a bit of a dick for not being selfless. Or conversely, I see someone stay behind and help the old gear steward get his thing in. I, I make sure people do that. Like, um, and that was like that camp we just did was really good for that. It was nothing to do with footy. We just hiked and paddled and did team building activities. And when the boys got real tired and grumpy, and fatigued and agitated and starting to question what the fuck are we doing this in the middle of the bush at 3am it's like then I'm looking for the ones that are that are team first or selfless or going back and helping each other because then I think over time you can change that in a, in a person like I wasn't like that I was I was a selfish I was in an individual I was into individual sports early as a as a teenager, I swam and I paddled. I didn't row surf boats because that was the ultimate team sport in our club. And because I, I didn't because my team wasn't as dedicated as I was. Like I'd swim every morning and paddle every arvo. The boaties had only trained three arvos a week. And I wanted, to, I wanted more out of my sport. But I think just over time you realise, yeah, I still wouldn't say I'm a selfless person by nature. I, I do. But in a professional sense, I really make an effort to to reward those behaviours, to make sure that the, the 35th member of the team feels just as important as the first. And you do, you got to manufacture some little some little things. I might have noticed something that the captain didn't notice. And I'll just go, mate, when, when you go past Jimmy, just give him a wrap around around that. Um, and yeah, so, so all those things, I think that's just a little bit of... Um, not icing on the cake, but just a little bit of needling and peripheral stuff. But if you can keep doing that and the players know what behaviours you want, you reward them, you make them public, then they all start chasing them. And then you got a better group. I want to ask you about culture in a second, but um, this, this year was my first year coaching. And one of the big surprises for me is the the human element. And, um, it's, it's, it's more time-consuming than the actual rugby side of it, um, for me anyway. How important, how important for, for coaches do you think it is to have a good understanding of the human element of coaching? Because as you said there, it's important that the 35th member of the squad feels valued as, as someone like Michael Hooper would want to feel valued. You know, it's a very human trait 
do, do you, how important do you see that for the success of any team? Yeah, it's massive. And not only the number one or the big dogs feel and value, but I take great delight in, in just bringing them down. So, so they're not on a pedestal. Um, and I lead that myself. Like I'm a goofball. Like I, I make lots of mistakes, grammatical errors or whatever it may be when I'm talking and, and, uh, or I'll, I'll say shit jokes, just the, the dad jokes or whatever it may be. And, and they don't go how you want, but it's, it's good because no one's perfect. And if they feel that the, like I try my hardest, but if I think if the team feels that the head coach doesn't believe he's perfect, the head coach can, or the big dogs can admit when they're wrong, I'll go, Earlier in my career, I was a lot more black and white, mate. You, that was a shit option. Uh, later, it's like, well, what are you seeing there, mate? I he said, oh, I've seen this. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't even realise that because that was out of shot. Or I said, why didn't we go to the width on that side? He said, oh, Jimmy was down behind with a cramp. I said, oh, I didn't know that. So I think you've got to be a lot, a lot more measured. You've got to admit your mistakes super. So I think from the top end, that's important. Um, and then, as I said, getting your worker bees or your soldiers all feeling that they're appreciated is huge. Like you might sit just such simple things. Like you might score a, I don't know, a, a brilliant starter play try that's got three flick passes and a run around and looks awesome and all the backs get the accolades. I'd go back and go really pump up the tight end prop, but that was perfect scrum ball to launch off. If, yeah. if you're if you're not in if you're not rocked in locked into that great position, the strike from the hooker from two to eight is perfect. Your channel was great. Where and that's yeah the guy that I find it's always easy the guys that score the points and get the accolades from the press and all that they're the ones I'm least pumping up because I know they're already getting that. I'll go back two phases and go. Jimmy ran from that side of the field to the other. A lot of Jimmy's in my team, by the way. Um, Jim <laughs> ran from that side of the field to over there to make that clean out that that enabled us to get that two-pass shift and score in the far corner. And, yeah, play a C through that nice cutout pass that that laid on that try. But if Jimmy don't make that clean out that over there, and I think once everyone appreciates what everyone else in the team is doing, uh, you're getting there. My, my dad used to, I always believed surfboat rowing, uh, and it's topical. I'm sitting here at my hometown now at the, at the beach. Surfboat rowing is the ultimate team sport because, and my dad was big on it. My dad he says the same. Yeah. Like you, yeah. You, you, as a kid playing footy, if one bloke don't come to training, you can still train. One bloke gets sent off or has a bad game, you still win the game. In a yeah. surfboat crew of four, one guy doesn't show because he's lazy or one guy's not training hard enough and doesn't have a crack in the race. You ain't winning that race. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really good um, leveler and understanding of, uh, of team, team harmony and, and everyone putting in. What did you see in your first year at Gordon that you, ch- that you changed in your second year? Uh, I just went out. I think I had two, two phases. Like Matt, the president, when he got me there, he said, three years, mate, we can win a comp. I said, fuck three years. I reckon we can do it in two. Um, and 
was the first year was again just that um we, we had a thing uh nq no quick because i'd seen them the season before get some massive scores on like and they had some good players and a majority of that 23 that won the comp 12 of them were there in that in that two seasons ago when they come dead last so there was good players there uh james luff the margins those sort of guys, they just um, they just quit. Like they just, whether their team spirit was so low or they were just used to losing or they weren't getting pushed hard enough, whatever was wrong with the environment, there was something that was wrong with it. So we, uh, first year was just all about not quitting. Like, and in the end, we missed out on the playoffs by a point, I think a bonus point. We wouldn't have done any damage in the playoffs, but it was a nice sort of reward to sneak in six. But it was all about not quitting. Um, then what I changed in the second year was like, okay, now not quitting isn't good enough. Now it's, it's, it's about winning. Like we, we got to win. And again, we were lucky. We, we brought in probably the biggest changes. We, it was our nine and 10. So we had very similar squad, but we brought in Harrison Goddard and Rodney Iona. And if you got the same 11 Indians working as hard as they did, but you got two quarterbacks that are getting you as I said, yeah. getting into the other end of the field, out of your own end of the field, up the other end of the field more regularly, you, you got more chances to, to score. So that were two pivotal players, the, the nine and ten in that year, um, purely with their, their tactical now in their kicking game. On the culture side of things, they just got that, say that 12 blokes that were there when time sucked, they just got used to winning. They got used to that, that adrenaline of what a winning shed is like and and i'm probably a little different than other coaches like coaches they sort of it was, I think it was wayne bennett or someone said nothing's ever as good as it seems nor is anything as bad when you're in a, yeah. a winning run or a or a or a losing trot i i can't do that i ride the highs and lows more than anyone like if, if we win i want that fucking change room so happy i want beer in there i want I want song. I want good tunes after the team song's gone. I want that feeling of, because that's what you work so hard for, that ecstasy of being in a change room with your mates after a good win, and particularly a win you shouldn't have won or a tough win, is amazing. Conversely, if we're going to celebrate the high so low, I probably average out the same as every coach, but I just go up and down, whereas the loss, um, yeah, I'm not much chop to be around. Uh, it takes me four or five years before I'm worth even coming near um, <laughs> and uh, and I want the boys to feel like that I, I was like I want to it's like a simplistic but it's like a dog like if the dog does a good trick or whatever it is an act or a behavior you give it a bone you, you give it a biscuit and you if we win and, and that sheds in a I want that to feel like the best place on earth conversely if uh, you lost I'd I want it to hurt. I want you to show that you care that it hurts and, and I smack you. So it yeah, it's no rules. I don't think there's too much science in that. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Part two of DC will be out next Wednesday. Please make sure you check out the Loosehead Sports Show with me and Jed Gillespie. And make sure you subscribe and like on all the socials, guys. Thank you so much for all your support. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.